Good morning. This is the Hermit at Lockyer. Uh, Mike Jones. I uh, blog at the jmichaeljoneswriter.com website. Uh, today is April the 20th, 2022, and I'm going to, to be diving into a very complex topic that I could spend 10 hours discussing, especially with a group of people. Uh, but today I'm going to try to summarize it in 30 minutes, and it has a lot to do with philosophy. Um, and I, I love philosophy, and I'm a subsistence uh, philosopher, meaning I study philosophy for my own benefit of helping me to understand and make sense of the world. I'm not a philosophy uh, a major in, in academia, although I did take philosophy courses in college and have done a lot of reading. Uh, but as an academic uh, approach in philosophy, it gets very confusing uh, because of, uh, well, there's so many players. There's thousands of writers and philosophers throughout the ages that you have to know if you're in the academic part of philosophy. Um, and also the, the language that's used in philosophy, just like any subculture, uh, like real estate agents or uh, surfboarders or whoever, they have their own language and philosophers are no different. And for us lay people to read philosophy, sometimes very difficult. But they do look at manners of life, of how we think and live, and, and how we process the world that we live in. Now, I wrote one, uh, I think I've written seven books, seven books, eight, I don't remember. But anyway, uh, I got out of writing uh, nonfiction, and I wrote one book, and it's probably poorly written, as I've uh, gone through many courses in writing since then, and have tried to improve my writing, called Butterflies in the Belfry. And that was my first attempt at dealing with some of these uh, issues um, in philosophy and Christianity. Uh, and that was probably 15 years ago that book was published. But I decided after that because uh, religion and politics are very sensitive areas emotionally and people get very upset if you don't follow exactly what their subculture dictates you must follow. And I see my role as raising controversy, of raising questions, not to, to blend in with the background of popular Christianity or popular anything. So it was a hard experience for me because I got a lot of hate mail um, and from that experience. So I said, I'm never going to write a nonfiction book again. And now I'm focusing on trying to become a novelist, as are <laughs> half the population of America, I think. Uh, but if I ever did write another book that was nonfiction, I would probably call it The Grand Enigma. And what I mean by that, there is a dilemma that none of us can escape, and it's simply the fact that we exist. Now, uh, it creates tremendous problems. Now, uh, I'm going to describe in a minute my background, but I did have 30 years of evangelicalism under my belt till 1990. And evangelicals believe that uh, Christianity and the belief in God is the, is the slam dunk, no thinking, default position that is so obvious that you have to be either stupid or immoral not to hold that position. And then the atheists, and I've been an atheist at parts of my life, and I have many friends who are atheists, and I respect them. But they uh, would say, well, you know, atheism is really the default position. Uh, and if you're really smart, you're an atheist. Uh, but both of them, uh, I really believe, have their own subcultures of, of the same pressures that, you know, a teenage boy will start to smoke 
because all his friends smoke. If you're in a science lab and everyone's in your lab or say you're a professor and everyone in your department are atheists, uh, it's more likely you become an atheist. So I'm going to ask a hard question, then I'm going to tell a bit more about my background and how it relates to Rene Descartes, one of my favorite philosophers. Um, the question is, if you're a theist, someone who believes in God is how I define it today. Uh, if you're a theist, why? Why? And if you're an atheist, why? And I'm not going to give you much time to think about it now, but think about that. And you think you might know, but what's the real reason that you reach those positions? Uh, I'm often accused now of being overthinking uh, things. I don't overthink things. I think we all underthink things because the positions that we reach, like being a, a theist or an atheist, um, the way that we've done it, I think 99% of the time or more, we do it in a very dangerous way. And what I mean dangerous is that we can reach conclusions that are not consistent with reality very easily because of our approach to that. And when we say, oh, don't overthink it, just believe it. That's one of those ways that we underthink and, and in a very dangerous way. Now, when I say dangerous, uh, what I mean by dangerous, it's just simply ending up uh, believing something that's not true. Now, I don't even believe, I'm not saying dangerous on moral grounds. Although moral grounds has often, or not often, it's usually used maybe by both sides, but especially by the Christian to get people to convert to Christianity. And I'm going to tell you about my conversion because <laughs> I was thinking about that today when I was getting ready to do this, this uh, podcast. I, so I grew up in the Bible Belt, so Christianity was in the fabric of everything. And if you were an atheist, matter of fact, I knew one atheist in high school, and she was considered to be a witch, because uh, you just you just weren't an atheist in the Bible Belt in Appalachia. But in my heart of hearts, I was an agnostic at least. I was really into science, and science really made a lot of sense. And it seemed like science is one place that the truth was sought, but I would go to my church and and it was it was a farce to me. Uh, I mean, our I've mentioned this before, but um, our our music director was a pedophile, and everybody knew it. And they just let him continue his uh, sleazy workmanship on the young boys of our church. Uh, not me, but my brother guy was a victim of his dirty hands. But anyway, but so I see that the farce, and then I come to science, which there was a pursuit of truth. But anyway, I converted to Christianity wholesale when I was about a junior in high school. And we had a, a famous, locally famous basketball star. He'd been in college, a basketball star. And you know, again, this is in the Bible Belt. So you didn't have a choice about going to religious meetings at school. And I'm talking about public school. But we had a big um, a meeting where this uh, famous basketball player was going to speak. And it was mandatory that we all attend. Little did I know that he was an evangelist. And we went and I sat with my friends and the whole school was there. And this guy um, was an extremely effective emotional manipulator. The closest I've ever seen was one time I signed up to hear about timeshares and got separated from my car by their design. And like they never got away from those people. And it was brutal. Like I felt like I was in some you know, uh, a brainwashing uh, place, but the same with this guy. And when I'm talking about a uh, danger, um, that was how he spoke about not being a Christian. 
uh, and not just being a Christian in our in our neck of the woods, you had to be the right kind of Christian. You know, whether you're Baptist, the Baptists thought the Methodists were going to hell, the Methodists thought the Presbyterians were going to hell, and etc. So this guy tells a story over and over about how all of us kids are in danger of hell fire. And he told one story about this little tiny bird, like a canary, that would pick up one drop of water in the Atlantic Ocean and walk all the way to the Pacific Ocean and drop that drop in the Pacific. And when the bird would then have to walk all the way back to the Atlantic. Now imagine this in reality, how long that would take. I can imagine a bird walk, you know, a bird can cover a lot of territory flying, but walking, uh, how many years it would take to, to make each change across the country. But then he described when that bird had completely emptied out the Atlantic into the Pacific, and <laughs> I know if you have any consciousness of uh, of, of the world and how it functions, then you know that would be impossible because the Pacific flows into the Atlantic. But anyway, just an imaginary. Uh, so you're thinking about, if you follow his scheme of things, you're talking about millions of years, would only be the first day of hell. And then he described how our flesh on our bones would be cooking while we're alive, but we would never die. And the suffering would be beyond what anything we ever imagined. So anyway, I have a lot of issues with the concept of literal hell, but my point in all this is not to say that if you end up with the wrong conclusion, you would end up in hell. I'm certainly not saying anything like that, but I'm saying it's a dangerous process to how most people reach their conclusion that God either exists or doesn't exist because it can put you on the wrong path. And again, I'm not talking morally, uh, but it can uh, end up, uh, committing your life to something that's not true. Now, with all that said, I have to say I'm not a, I do not profess certitude about anything I say. I've done several podcasts and many of them are controversial. None of them have certitude, but it's just hunches, uh, hunches about things. So I'm going to talk a little bit about now about Rene Descartes and myself. Uh, so I became, uh, as I was describing, evangelical in high school. Oh, I, I didn't talk about what happened then. So he, he presents this very emotional, um, uh, tormenting uh, lecture or sermon. And then a lot of music and people are crying. These high school kids are crying and crying. And then he does this intensive uh, altar call, we call it. Like, I don't know if you ever watched Billy Graham, where people come forward and commit themselves to Christ. Um, and he he went on and on and on i think for hours until he emptied out almost a whole high school uh bleachers coming down to the gym floor to confess uh and everybody's crying and i'm sitting there and i know i'm a skeptic so i'm not crying but i do feel this intense social pressure all my friends got up and went my girlfriend went up went down and everyone's crying and crying and you feel this intense pressure that you're left alone in the stands like some evil person so you go down and you commit yourself so you know i'm not saying it wasn't legitimate or sincere but i think that's the way that many people enter christianity through events like that very emotional events or what turns out to be social pressure so coming back to the reason that people believe in God, and it applies to the reasons that people don't believe in God, much of it is intense peer pressure from your family and from your society. 
Now, I think we're living in another dark age, not as dark as the previous one, and that's a subject of a whole different podcast. But today, reason is looked down upon. Like I said, people accuse me of overthinking. And people, Christians, I know, and I, I think I've heard atheists say this in a different way, but Christians will say, oh, uh, they're, they're Christians because they have simple, humble faith, and God just really loves that. Well, I became a hardcore evangelical for 30 years, and I'm talking hard, hardcore, that I was a part of a, a, a ministry called the Navigators that emphasized discipleship. I was in a discipleship training center for five years. Uh, it was, it borderline that one, I'm not saying the Navigators, but that particular group borderline on being a cult. 26 years old, you could not leave town without permission of your leader. The, the leader was matchmaking marriages in the group and was very disappointed when I didn't uh, follow his lead and been match made, um, but married someone um, outside our group. Uh, so anyway, you, it was, the, the pressure was intense. And I say this because just a few years ago, someone at my present church was trying to reconvert me to evangelicalism. And uh, they were trying to say that I never gave it a serious thought. Are you kidding me? 30 years I was in it. And to the point that I sold everything I had, took my wife and two little kids, and actually she was pregnant with her third. We moved to the heart of Islam to be uh, missionaries to Muslims because of our commitment to, to evangelicalism. And for someone to say, I never took it seriously, has no clue what they're talking about. But anyway, in 1990, uh, uh, I had an event I alluded to in other podcasts, but this was a, a gradual event. I became, I've always been very interested in the inner person. I'm talking about your soul within your soul within your soul, that vault where no one else knows about, your very private world. I got a degree in psychology because that's very interesting, and I was going to get a, a double major in sociology, but I re realized that the only job I could find with a degree in sociology would be flipping burgers. So at the end of my uh, college, I studied pre-med and went into medicine as a PA. But anyway, uh, I've always been interested in this concept of who we really are in our most private parts of our heart. So starting, well, always through my 30 years, I had this place in my heart of hearts that I knew that we were not being honest. Uh, we did not have candor. We would exaggerate all the time events to make them look like supernatural miracles, which they were not. And I saw them, I saw my friends doing the same thing. Uh, I, I would be there, witness the event, then they would tell the story, exaggerating and embellishing it to make it sound like a miracle, which the social group of evangelicals thought were wonderful. And you become, you know, your self-esteem is raised when you tell one of these stories. And then we, the other thing was we manipulated each other for our own benefit, but we did it under a spiritual guise of saying that we had the best interest for you and I've told this story before, but one example in the training center is this leader's wife, who's also a leader, told the girls that in the group that Jesus wanted them to come clean her house three times a week from top to bottom. And she would check it with a white glove to make sure the dust was picked up to, to show honor to Jesus. And they did it for years. They cleaned her house. Now, that's how we manipulate people. But, and I saw through that, but it was finally an event when we were still uh, in the Muslim world that uh, I won't go into here, but I almost lost my young son. Uh, he almost died uh, from an infection, but it was due, but <laughs> there's my leader was manipulating us so badly. It got us into a situation that we should have never been in. 
but I'm not blaming him, and it, and I don't have. Uh, I'm not a victim. I'm not someone who has all these strange feelings about evangelicalism because I've been traumatized at all. Because I I did the same thing to other people. It was just part of the mo of the organization or the group that we were in. But anyway, in 1990, finally uh, things collapsed in my world, completely collapsed. And I go through that in that book, Butterflies in the Belfry, how that happened. But I remember clear as a bell sitting in my apartment in Cairo, Egypt. Uh, the morning prayers had just started. I'm sitting there. The sun is just starting to, to make some light over the eastern Sahara. And I say, I, I really thought, I don't, I'm not sure if God is really there. And I prayed. I said, God, if you're there, help me find you. But I want to do it in reality, in honesty, and candor, and not in self-deception or anything like that. So I spent the next 10 years where I studied and studied and studied and, and went through agnosticism and atheism. But I came back to a belief in God in a very different way than I had before, because uh, I believed in God in the traditional way uh, of uh, group pressure, uh, pressuring me to believe in God, being raised in a so-called Christian family, being in a Christian society. Now, the dangerous part with this quote, simple faith, unquote, <laughs> that people think uh, is so great and they, they pat themselves on the back that they have just a simple faith, they, they never have any deep thoughts, uh, they don't overthink things, is that if I had been born in India, I would have had the same commitment to Hinduism. If I'd been born in, uh, in Mecca or Saudi Arabia or anywhere in the Middle East, I'd have the same commitment to, to Islam. If I'd been born into the intellectual uh, family that were professors, I'd have the same commitment to atheism. So that's the danger part is this, is that it's not based on what we think it's based on. Our conviction about God's existence or God's not existence is not based on uh, us being smarter than other people or us being, us being more moral um, than other people. And I remember one of my leaders when I was in college and I was part of this group, telling me, uh, he said, the, the reason, said, God is so obvious, oh, it's so obvious, that the only reason atheists are atheists is because it's a moral problem because they want to have sex with their girlfriends, and they can't have sex with their girlfriends uh, without, uh, and still believing that God, and, and God uh, saying that having sex with your girlfriend is wrong. So that's why he, how he defined atheism. Well, that's just absolutely not true. Um, so I have respect for atheists and, and as well as theists, uh, of course, or I wouldn't be one. But this is the this would be the title of my book is the grand enigma, is that the fact that we exist creates a tremendous problem for us. And I don't mean it in a sad, you know, stressful way, but it creates a dilemma, a dilemma that that none of the answers are easy. The Christian answer they claim to be easy, it's not. There's problems philosophically within Christianity, if you sit and think about long enough, you know, one is, you know, okay, God created the universe 13.7 billion years wide. Why don't we see his clear presence? Now, I'm not talking, you know, virtually all Christians say, oh, I see God every day. I'm that's, that's sort of a mystical thing. But I'm talking about a clear presence of, you know, raising people from the dead of, you know, you know, I'm talking about major, um, uh, supernatural events uh, that make God obvious. 
So, I mean, that's just one of many problems. And atheism has problems too. And I'm going to describe that problem for a moment. And I will eventually get onto Rene Descartes here. But atheists,、um, I've had many conversations with atheists. And the problem with true atheism is that you have to give up the hopes of meaning, you have to give up the hopes of morals. Because if you have a universe that comes out of nothing, and say the Newtonian laws come out of nothing,、um, Uh, quantum mechanics comes out of nothing. All these things that create order in this universe came out of nothing and for no reason. That therefore you cannot create meaning and reason. Now, the atheists have told me that they do create meaning using because they're existentialists. Now, this is one of these philosophical terms that can easily get one lost, but simply existentialism is creating meaning from nothing. Uh, for an example, imagine a group of people are on a, a tanker ship and they're inside the tank so they can't see the sky and they're crossing the Atlantic. They don't care if they're in a ship because they don't know if they're in a ship. They don't care where the ship's going, but they can just make up rules that they live by that gives them meaning. Well, from, I'm a classical uh, uh, logic person from the, the, the Greeks. And, and I don't think the Greeks made this up. I think they discovered reason、um, in, in, in people like uh, Aristotle, uh, uh, Socrates, uh, Plato. Uh, they, they discovered, and Pythagoras、uh, was a, a big one, they discovered reason. And I think reason is God given. And now that we're getting away from reason, I've heard、uh, Rob Bell use the term transrational, which really bothers me. Uh, it's this escape from reason、um, into nothingness.、Uh, but I, I'm a classic reason person. So here's the problem with this idea of coming up with,、uh, with positions、uh, haphazardly or through social coercion. So someone would say, okay, now, now in the modern time, someone would say, okay, if I was born in India and became a Hindu, what's the problem with that? I'll just be, be a good Hindu because as long as I'm spiritual, it doesn't matter what I believe. Well, here's the problem. And people, this is certainly not bigotry at all. I,、uh, I've had Hindu friends I deeply respect, I've had Buddhist friends I deeply respect. I certainly have had plenty of Muslim friends I deeply respect, and of course, Christian friends. Here's the problem in classic logic. All these different viewpoints cannot all be true. In classic logic, which is mathematical in its nature, if A equals B and B is the opposite of C, then A cannot equal C. It's impossible. So that's just classic logic. But in this way, if you really study Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam and Judaism and atheism, And more of the isms and Christianity, they are saying profoundly different things. You know, Hinduism does not、uh, describe a single God,、uh, more of a spiritual force. Islam、uh, does not describe Jesus as the Son of God. So the problem is, you put these out on the table, and if you're honest about it, only one of them can be closer to the truth, not all of them. You can't be quasi, okay, I'm sort of an atheist, but I'm also a Christian. I mean, you can be a Christian with atheistic doubts. That's fine. I have them. I'm not, I don't have the certainty that God exists.、Um, but, but you cannot blend 
opposite ideas, and that's what's happening today. Buddhism especially has been pulled into Christianity, and it's it, to me it's a mess. But that's the danger I'm talking about, the danger of uh, haphazardly uh, choosing a faith uh, and not being honest about it. So you, an atheist would argue with me, well, Mike, you're a Christian, but still you would not be a Christian if you had not grown up in Tennessee in the Bible Belt and had all these experiences with even that uh, wayward <laughs> basketball star in high school. And, you know, there's some validity to that. Uh, that argument has soundness. But I certainly have spent years and years contemplating, especially the year of the 90s, contemplating. That's why I went from agnosticism to atheism and then back to believing in God and even the Christian God and, cons and certainly consider myself a Christian now. So in closing in this, I've got a few more minutes left. I never did get into Rene Descartes. <laughs> Rene Descartes, the first time I heard of him, I think it, was, it may have been in high school, but it was, of course, his famous saying, I think, therefore I am. Uh, I'm trying to remember the Latin uh, way to say it. Um, Oh, oh, cognito ergo sum, and I think French is, and my French is terrible now, uh, Jean Potts dans Jésus, something like that. Uh, I really uh, uh, murdered that. But anyway, Descartes says, I think, therefore, I am. The thing I really like about Descartes was in 1990, Descartes wasn't there. Actually, he was, he was born about 15, late 1500s, and he lived in early 1600s. But in 1990, when I made this commitment to find truth at all costs, I wanted to be profoundly candor. I also wanted to, you know, living in another culture, I could easily see the edges of the layers of my own culture, my family culture, my local town culture, my Appalachia culture, my American culture, my evangelical culture, all these things laying over me. And I want to peel those things away and approach truth and try my best. It's impossible to do it fully. Try my best without these cultural influences. But Rene Descartes, who you know, he was a Christian. He was a Catholic. Uh, he he kept his Christianity all through his life. But he wanted to divorce himself from cultural influences. Also, he said he would not build on the shoulders of any other philosopher. But he did. Aristotle had a, a big impact in his life. But he wanted to. He he's considered the father of the age of reason. Uh, he wanted to approach truth from this honest candor way. And to do that, and, uh, Descartes said that doubt is a soil on which uh, buildings of knowledge and truth are built. So he said the first step is to doubt everything. And that's what I did in 1990. I began to intentionally doubt everything. Say, okay, I'm a Christian because of this experience in high school. Um, and I have all these beliefs about the world because of my evangelical faith. Um, and I started peeling all those layers back and Descartes did the same. And that's why he arrived at this. I think therefore I am. He got to the very basis of, of okay, he exists because he has doubts, he exists. So that's the starting point. That's why he knows for sure. And then, but he didn't stop there. And a lot of people think he just stopped there. So in, in high school, if, if I remember right, we thought he was an idiot because we were idiots. Uh, but that was his starting point. And he wrote a lot of things about emotions, about the soul, about theology, a lot of good things. Uh, so uh, in my, con I'm, I'm getting down to the last few minutes. I, I may come back and do a part two on this. I'm not sure. But uh, <laughs> I'm trying to 
think how to use these last two minutes. Um, my encouragement is for people to think honestly and to be in, in, of great candor. And this idea that, uh, oh, Christianity is a slam dunk, that, you know, God is so obvious, the Christian God is so obvious, is, is a real problem. Now, I didn't mention this yet. Now, I, I had a conversation once with a pastor who told me very candidly, you know, sometimes you get along with someone and you're talking for hours, fishing or something, and you get deeper and deeper into each other's soul. And it's one of those moments I got very deep in his soul. And he told me, he said, you know, he came to a crossroads when he was studying theology in seminary that he thought, how do I know God exists? And then he thought, you know what? I have my, my career choice of being a pastor. Uh, I had this all set out. I'm married. My wife and I are all planning on being a pastor. I like the pastor world. And he said, so I'm going to bury those doubts and not have any of them. And, and he said, even if I'm pretending that it's all true, I know how to pretend. And that's the world I want to live in. So that's a little bit of this existential, uh, uh, <laughs> existentialism as far in a philosophical term of where you create your own reality. So he would wonder, he didn't care what was true. I mean, in his heart of hearts, he would probably have never said that to anyone else, but in his heart of hearts, he didn't care what was really true. Now, one of the problems for the Christian who takes this nonchalant or culturally induced uh, um, belief in God is that our young people are leaving the church in droves and I don't blame them. As a matter of fact, I worry more about the kids who stay in church having raised five kids in the church, um, I, I'm worried about those who, who are so conformative to the culture that they not dare leave and they can't think for themselves because we have done a very poor job um, in, in helping kids uh, come to a good, solid faith. Uh, so I'm going to conclude that here, and I, I feel like I have some loose ends. I may come back and do an, a part two later. Thanks for listening.